It is Encounter with God time here on The Breakfast Show. We're about to get into our Bible study, so get ready to dig in. We're going back to Genesis chapter 6, but before we do, we are going to have a look at the 400-point question for the quiz. All right, for 400 points, God has let me forget all my troubles and my family back home was the meaning of which of Joseph's son's names. Wow. Okay. Let's let's read that again. Let's That's just a get five hundred points. Let's right just there. get it absolutely. Except key. there's only two to choose from. Okay. You got a fifty fifty chance. Here. Yeah. That's right. So this is a quote. God has let me forget all my troubles and my family back home was the meaning of which of Joseph's son's name. So Joseph, he had a son. His son's name meant one of his son's names because he, he had a couple sons. One of his son's names meant God has let me forget all my troubles and my family back home. Zero four nine one zero six four six six nine is the number to call if you know the answer. For 400 points, you can win yourself a book from our selection of bargain books, or you can get those points on the board. Keep working your way through the quiz. Join the Bragging Rights Club and just get them correct. Uh, but yeah, find, find the answer to that question. Which, which of Joseph's sons, his name meant that? All right, so we have a number of text messages to have a look at here. Hooray for the new buses, although I haven't been on a bus for about 15 years, you have to admit. <laughs> it's great savings on the fuel bill. Yeah. I wonder whether the bus fares will get cheaper. No, they'll get more expensive. <laughs> okay, so nasal spray that's interesting, a spray that stops you from breathing COVID in, and injection that gives it to you. Really funny. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Uranus, let's visit another rock that is truly a waste of money. It's... It's bases on salvation by works, finding a planet where the elite can live and let the rest of us self-destruct. They don't believe in the good news. This is a spicy one. Um, I, and I understand this. I, I, I really I, do. I feel that, yeah. I, I understand the, the, the idea of, okay, why are we spending money on going to space when we probably should be spending that money on saving the world? Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I can see that. I, I think agree. That, I think there's a validity to that argument. I also like the idea of expanding human knowledge. I believe that God created these things for us to study mm. and to learn more about. And when we study them and we learn more about them, we are actually acting in the image of God. So I kind of see two sides to the story. I'm conflicted. Yeah, well, I think that you know because as I said, the disappointing for me, uh, the disappointing part, the disappointing part for me in that story was that it's going to take place in like 2031. And I'm like, oh, well, if you just want to make the wild decision to go to Uranus, just just do it now. Just send it. Just just recklessly spend all that money and let's get in a plane and go. I'm, that's what I want to see take place. Okay, the mega church meltdown. <laughs> I don't see any mega churches in the Bible besides the Catholic Church. Ooh, ooh, the horror of Revelation. Mega churches tend to have a king in charge, and human nature does the rest. And that's that summarizes it right there. Mm-hmm. Mega churches have a king in charge and human nature does the rest. And and this is one of the things that I think we need to recognize is that mega churches are bad for pastors. Mm-hmm. They, they are simply bad for pastors because they set pastors up for destruction. They create an environment in which somebody who is gifted with leadership that those gifts can so easily be turned around to focus on themselves and it begins small and it takes place over a long period of time and those problems grow and grow and grow and grow until they really think like that they are a king with yeah. a little kingdom. And I think when it comes to like the mega church format as well, because obviously it's a church that is 
grown incredibly large and you could say, hey, you know, look at the fruits. Like, look how well this is going. Like, look how much of a blessing we're being because we have this mega church, but ultimately you set up a circumstance in which the entirety of the ministry relies on some really gifted pastor rather than on God. That's right. Absolutely. And the Bible warns about this. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, the Bible talks about, you know, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, that's symbolism for Jesus saying, I'm the one who holds the leadership of the church in my right hand. In other words, without me, mm-hmm. these guys are nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is actually repeated twice in the prophecy to the seven churches where God comes along and reminds them, without me, your celebrity pastors are nothing. It's it's interesting because, like, just in celebrities in general, we, we put them on a really high pedestal and all of them have some kind of drama, whether you talk about, like, Kanye West or Brad and Angelina, whatever, whoever with, like, the famous superstars over the last, you know, I, I would say the last maybe 120 years where we've come into the modern age of, of what a celebrity looks like and how they're so globalized and everybody knows them. Um, and they've all got drama and they've all got issues and it's always blowing up. But the problem is, is that when you put a pastor in that position, those blow ups and drama ultimately lead to the People's loss of salvation. salvation. Yeah, that's right. That's and that is, this, that is the saddest thing. So let's just avoid it. Do you know any mega churches that won't join the new world order? Money rules. It's not if it's not biblical, it's not biblical. That's a good good text message right there. I appreciate that one mm-hmm. very much. All right, so that's what you had to say this morning. We'd love to hear what you continue to have to say as we dig into our Bible study. Let's go to Genesis chapter six and read verse fourteen. Genesis six and verse fourteen, as we find it here on the page, the Bible says. Build a large boat <laughs> from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct the decks and stalls throughout its interior. Okay. The Bible says that a large boat was to be built and she was to be built out of timber. Why do you think that God instructed them to build this particular vessel from timber? Because they didn't have fiberglass. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'm, I'm just going to theorize this morning. Okay. And if you go back to, say, for instance, the era before icebreakers Mm -hmm. and you talk about Antarctic exploration, Mm -hmm. any ship that was ever built for Antarctic exploration was built out of timber in an age where all ships were being built out of steel. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because timber, like, flexes? Because timber flexes. Mm. Absolutely. Timber is one of the most amazing substances available. And we don't really know the composition of the timber in the antediluvian world, but Mm. I think it would be safe to say that, you know, you're dealing with, we know the vegetation was much, much larger than what it is right now, at Mm -hmm. least three times bigger than what we've got right now. And we can tell that from the coal seams that have been laid down and the oil reserves and so forth that, you know, the, the vegetation was very, very large. It would probably go along that the vegetation, the timber that was available would be much stronger. And when God said use gopher wood, that he was specifying a particularly a particular type of wood that was probably had the best qualities of steel combined with the best qualities of timber. Mm. So you have the you know the, the the flexibility of timber, and you read the story of the endurance, uh, which was recently discovered down in Antarctica, which was one of the last wooden ships to go down there, and you know it was built as a wooden ship because it had to withstand the pressure of the ice and steel mm-hmm. simply could not do that. Now, of course, they build out of steel these days and they build the shape of the vessel in such a way that when the pressure of the ice comes on, the ship will actually ride up on top of the ice and then break through it. That's how an icebreaker works. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, you actually drive the ship out on top of the ice and then and then and then crush down through it. But even still, we still lose icebreakers in the Antarctic mm-hmm. to the pressure of the ice. Wow! Because steel is just not capable of dealing with does does not have the flexibility required to deal with the pressure of ice. Mm. And it just doesn't have, you know, and they, and they talk about, you know, in the endurance how there were times when the pressure of the ice would come on and that trip was built for Arctic exploration. Mm. It ended up in the Antarctic, but it was built for Arctic exploration. Yeah. And so it was incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. And they talk about it flexing so much that the bow was in line with the stern. It was actually bent like a banana and so it was straight down one side. And then the pressure coming off and it going back into shape again. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Before eventually, and you do that too many times, nothing's going to stand up to it. And she, <laughs> she sunk. But the ark was made out of out of wood. It was made out of gopher wood, and I can see a lot of wisdom in that for building a very large vessel that's going to be dealing with incredible stresses. Mm. All right, let's uh, continue on here. Uh, verse fifteen. Now, my Bible makes a large assumption here. It does. It does. Are you ready? You ready to hear it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so verse 15. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Yeah, why did they have to put it in feet and inches for? Yeah. Is there an assumption here that... There's two assumptions here. One is that everybody who reads the Bible is an American. Yeah. I, I have no idea what's being said right now. <laughs> and, and, and seriously, in today's world, yes, I do believe that it's a good idea to translate it into language that's going to make sense for us and we can get a picture mm-hmm. of it. At least give us metric and standard at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, seriously, how hard could it be to put one of the other uh, measurements in brackets? If mm-hmm. you think you're going to sell this just to an American audience, then at least give us the metres in brackets. Yeah, that's right. But the other assumption is that they were using a Canaanite cubit. Yeah, yeah, yeah which we talked about the other day. Mm-hmm. It, it could have, she could have been a much larger uh, ship than just that. So interesting stuff in relationship to the dimensions, right here. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. What's fascinating is that the formula around which the ark was constructed is a formula that shipbuilders to this day, as far as uh, length by breadth, Mm -hmm. uh, it is the most stable formula that you can produce in shipbuilding today. Yeah, I think you get a picture of something here that's like long, uh, flat, and wide, so it'll be able to withstand. Yeah, for instance, the the, the longest serving battleship in the world, the USS Missouri, Mm -hmm. is built on this particular formula. Oh, wow. That, man, that, that's so American. Length for breadth for height, um, or length for length for breadth, because of the stability that it creates. And of course, when you're dealing with a battleship that is firing guns, mm-hmm. stability is incredibly important. When you're firing rockets, like battleships do these days, well, we don't have battleships anymore. But uh, when you're firing rockets, that stability is not so important because the rocket aims itself after it has left the ship. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're firing guns, stability is yeah, yeah. It's super important. Pretty important, especially when you're like bobbing around in the water. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Um, yeah. All right. So <clears throat> let's continue on here. We have um, an incredible, uh, incredible ship that was being built. And, and when we talk about the different cubits that could have been used, you know, we have to recognize that if they used an Egyptian cubit, she would have been considerably bigger than the dimensions that you have in mm. your Bible. Uh, your Bible gives the dimensions of the one that's in Kentucky, mm-hmm. which is the smallest option. 
Uh, it could have been using the an antediluvian cubit, which in which case she would have been a massive ship. But even even by anyone's standards, she was a large vessel. Was even a by the Canaanite standards, yeah. she was a very very large vessel. Mm-hmm. All right. Verse 16. Verse 16, leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. Uh, Put doors on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. Okay, so once again, your translation has um, added some interesting information in there Mm -hmm. that does come through in the original language. Mm -hmm. Is not necessarily exactly how it was done, but it's certainly a part of the translation. So you do have ventilation all the way around, which is interesting, and a door as well. Mm-hmm. Kind of important to have a door. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd expect so. And, you know, this window that goes all the way around, I mean, my translation says, uh, what does it say here? It simply says in verse 16, a window shall you make to the ark and a cubit shall you finish it above and the door of the ark you shall set on the side thereof. With lower second and third stories, you shall make it. So mm. three-story vessel, you've got uh, ventilation and a way in and out. Mm. All right, let's continue on here. Uh, and let's let's think about for a moment what this ark is actually, what she's going to have to withstand. Mm. Because in many ways, you are not just building a a ship that is going to be a raft, which is essentially what she was, but you're also building something that's going to have to withstand the tremendous forces created by the flood. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when we look at our world today and we say, well, you know, our world today is uh, the result of the flood, and we say, well, where did all the water go? Well, all the water went into the oceans. Well, what does that mean? It means that the oceans were pushed up mm-hmm. uh, from the, from the, you know, uh, and, and the mountains were pushed up. And so then you start to think about the tsunamis that's going to create. Mm. So you've got, the Bible says the fountains of the great deep were broken up. We'll read about it in just a moment. And that's where the flood starts with water coming out of the earth. And then you've got the heavens open. You've got water coming down from the sky. So you've got water coming from all over the place. So you've got the earth, the earth's crust being broken up. You've got continents being pushed up. You've got ocean basins being pushed down. You've got mountain ranges being pushed up. And when you look at, you know, the destruction that happens when you get something incredibly minor in comparison to that, because you're going to have a massive amount of volcanic activity at the same time. You know, you don't you don't break up the Earth's crust without a whole lot of volcanoes going off. Uh, we had the volcano recently in Tonga mm. and the resulting tsunami, and look at the damage that that caused in a very short space of time. Incredibly minor compared to what happened at the time of the flood. Probably the one that stands out in my mind the most would be the Indian Ocean tsunami, um, probably, what was it, 20 years ago, something like that, in which it was the earthquake was so powerful that they had to redraw maps for some of the islands because they were now 30 metres moved from where they'd been before. Wow. So you've got an island that moves 30 metres and, what, 200,000-plus people die mm. from the tsunami. In the modern age. Mm. What happens when the Andes is pushed up? Yeah, well. What happens when the Rockies are pushed up or... Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the Himalayas are pushed mm. up. You know, 
what's what's the conditions going to be like? In many ways, you've got to not, not just build a raft, you've got to build a submarine as well. Mm. This thing's got to be able to survive being submerged. Mm-hmm. This is going to you're going to have rain pelting down from above. You're going to have the earth, the surface of the earth being broken up all over. You're going to have tsunamis just washing backwards and forwards. You're going to have you know so much sediment that you get things like you know the blue mountains that we have at our doorstep right here in Newcastle, which are all made out of sandstone, being formed. Mm. You're going to have you know massive valleys like the Grand Canyon in the United States or just the Jamison Valley behind Sydney there being formed in a very short space of time as the water is running off the continents as the continents are being pushed up. Where is the ark? What Mm. is happening to it? How is it surviving all of this? These are forces that we can't even begin to imagine. Mm. And it's all happening. So it's a good thing that she was uh, built strong and built out of timber and able to withstand it, but without the divine intervention of God, I don't believe that she would have been able to even still. All right, let's continue on here. Um, uh, Where are we? Verse 17, 18, 19, 20. Let's read down through some of these verses. All right, it says, Look, I am about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on the earth will die. But I will confirm a covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come and be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as the Lord commanded. Yes. So just looking at the ark here and a couple of final thoughts, I guess um, it's good to convert the smallest possible ark across Mm. to uh, something that we can understand. And so if you use the standard uh, cubit, Canaanite cubit, 450 millimetres, she would have been 140 metres long. She would have been four and a half storeys high and displaced 15,000 tonnes. So that's fairly significant. Uh, So that, you know, if you look at that, that's a a very, very large ship. She was one of the... One of, it should be one of the three largest wooden ships ever built, uh, equal to Zi Heng's famous Chinese junk from the 1400s and uh, some of the uh, legendary Greek triremes. Tri- mm. uh, if she if you used the Egyptian cubit, she would have been 160 metres long. If you used an antediluvian cubit, she could have been 450 metres long and displaced 724,000 short tonnes. Dude, if I didn't fit, that's like half a half a kilometer. That, that would have that would have made her the second largest ship ever built, uh-huh. longer than the state the Empire State Building in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, she would have been eclipsed if she was built on an antediluvian cubit. She would have been eclipsed by the Seawise Giant, who who is only eight meters longer. Mm. So that's a pretty impressive ship. Yeah. You know, you go to Kentucky and you have a look at the one in Kentucky, which is, you know, the smallest option that you've got for the Ark, and it's an impressive ship by anybody's standard. Mm -hmm. All right, so 
Um, just a couple of uh, a little bit of trivia for us there to have a think about in our minds. And you know, if you want to get a picture of that, then just Google the uh, the Seawise Giant and check out that ship. Uh, it will give you an indication of how large the Ark could have been. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. We're about to launch into our 500-point question for the day. I think the 400-pointer was worth 500 points. Let's mm-hmm. see what the 500-pointer is. See if you can top the 400-pointer. Well, this 500-pointer, I preached on this like pretty recently, so I, I knew the answer like as soon as I started to read the question. But uh, I think a lot of people won't be in the same boat as me. The question is, though, for 500 points, what priest showed young King Josiah the book of the law's requirements, which led him to remove all the mediums and spiritists from Judah? 0491-064-669 is the number to call if you know the answer. If you do, you can win our giveaway for this morning, well, our 500-point um prize for this morning um the table i long for by sean brace learning to participate in the mission and family of god and this is actually a book that is all about church we've been talking about church this morning we've been talking about mega churches and how you know there is the the struggle that we've seen as they have grown in popularity throughout western culture um how they have actually in a, a lot of cases brought the word of god into disrepute and it's been really sad to see how they've fallen apart and, and fallen away um but ultimately this book is about well, well what is the remedy for that how do we do church how do we relate to the family of god that's exactly what this book is about the table i long for by sean brace but again that question that you have to answer if you would like to receive it what priest showed young King Josiah the book of the law's requirements, which led him to remove all the mediums and spiritists from Judah? 0491-064-669. Okay, a couple of text messages coming through. Rafi says, um, I have to go for the biggest ship. Anything else would not make sense. Oh. Um, Bruce says, it's interesting that Ark was made from wood. It's a living thing that was used to keep things alive. <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Mm. Okay, so one of the interesting things, you know, one of the big objections that people bring up all the time in relationship to the ark is that, you know, we've got these passages here where, you know, verse 17, God says, I'm going to bring a flood on the earth. Uh, verse 19, take every living thing, two of every kind, she bring into the ark to keep them alive. The male and his female and the birds and the cattle and so forth, you should be take, them, take these into the ark to keep them alive on the earth. And people, of course, look at it and go, well, that's impossible because there are way too many species of animals mm-hmm. to be able to put them all on the ark. You would never fit two of every kind on the ark. And this is one of the reasons why the ark was built in Kentucky was to demonstrate how easy that would actually be mm. to, to accomplish. Now, we need to recognize that these are kinds, not every different breed. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you only need to take two dogs on the ark and you have all the dogs that we have in our world today because we know from uh, DNA studies that all the dogs that exist in the world today came from two original wolf-like creatures mm-hmm. and so you've got you know lots of different cats would have come from two cats well this is a do- different dogs would have come from two dogs <laughs> and lyle cried because they they could have just left them off the ark you only had to leave one <laughs> leave you could have taken one as a pet You're an unclean and- animal you've only got two just leave one <laughs> just drive to the side <laughs> okay surely that's a crime the other thing that you, we need to remember <laughs> is that you don't need to bring adults on you only need to bring juveniles on Mm. And in some cases, that would mean that you would, with some species, you only need to take eggs. Mm. Wow. 
Yeah. So it's not a very difficult thing to accomplish, even in a primitive society. And there's no indication that the antediluvian society was in any, any way primitive. The society that came after the antediluvian society was definitely primitive. Mm. We know that from archaeology. We know that from history. They had incredible understanding. They had incredible science. But there is an indication that they had been knocked backwards mm. And so you had many Stone Age societies that grew up after the flood uh, with various levels of primitiveness, mm. you might say, or advancement on other in other hands. And it's kind of like, well, you know, what would, it, what would our world be like if we had the same event happen right now and eight of us survived? We would carry a lot of knowledge into the new world that we would not be able to implement and we would buy, basically start from Stone Age society a little bit above it and build from there. Mm. And a lot of the knowledge that we had would die off and people would have to learn from scratch. And so you can see that, you know, there was there's no indication that the Ark was in any way primitive, that it was uh, just because the societies that came afterwards we would see as being more primitive than now. Mm-hmm. All right, so very easy to fit them all on there. And if you go with the uh, antediluvian measurements, then it it's especially easy can, to fit them can, all on. You can do it three times over. Yeah. Yeah. There's, mm-hmm. there's not just room for all the animals, there's room for a lot of people as well. Yeah, but that's actually the unfortunate reality here we're going to read a, read about in the next chapter as we jump into chapter 7. The unfortunate reality is that people don't get on. Let's uh let's jump in there. Let's uh let's read. So in verse 1, it says when everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, "Go into the boat with all your family for among for among all the people of the earth, I can see that you are alone. You alone are righteous. Take seven pairs, uh, male and female, of each animal I have approved for eating and for sacrifice, and take one pair of each of the others. Also, take seven pairs of every kind of bird. Uh, there must be a male and a female of each pair uh, to ensure that all life will survive on the earth after the flood. Seven days from now, I will make the rains pour down on the earth, and it will be and it will rain for forty days and forty nights until I have wiped from the earth all living things I have created. And Noah did according unto all the Lord commanded him. Mm. So this is interesting because often when you see paintings of the ark, they will typically be cartoonized. But even when they're not, you see the animals going on two by two. Mm. Bible doesn't say that it went on two by two. Mm-hmm. Yes, most of them did, but not all of them. How did the others go on, the clean animals? Uh, so they were seven by two, right? This is an interesting debate, Mm. which we will never solve here on The Breakfast Show. Uh, The Bible says, of every clean beast you shall take to you by sevens. What does that mean? Does that mean that Noah took seven of them or that he took seven pairs? My Bible just says seven pairs. Indeed. And there are some translations which go with seven. Uh Some of my translation says by sevens. Okay, so... Which would indicate seven pairs. This is my, my reasoning. Okay, because you need some of these animals because you're going to eat them and sacrifice them. Yes. You need other of these animals to continue the species, That's right? right? So they need to be pairs. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. That's the direction. That's my opinion. It mm-hmm. cannot be proven from the original language. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have a, a debate between translators. But that's on, silly. And you will Stop never solve debating. the debate. You will never solve the debate. <laughs> but I think it's reasonable to say that they went on by sevens, mm-hmm. plural. In other words, uh, seven pairs. Mm-hmm. So you actually had 14 that went aboard because 
let's face it, these are species of animals that are going to be needed in large numbers once the flood is over. These are domestic creatures, and they are creatures that God has set aside for food. It's interesting Mm -hmm. that this is the very first time that you have a mention of clean and unclean foods, uh, clean and unclean animals, and we might sort of, if this was the only reference, we would sit back and wonder, what does God mean by clean and unclean animals? Well, we find out when Moses writes down that the clean animals are ones that you can eat and the unclean animals are ones you can't eat. It's it's really interesting um, because people often view clean and unclean animals for, that that was specifically a Jewish practice. But here we're looking at people who existed thousands of years before the Jews existed. Um, but uh, I remember looking at this passage with someone one time and they were saying, oh, clean and unclean animals, you know, that's done away as a Jewish thing. And I'm like, oh, but was Noah a Jew? And we, we read through and it's like, see, it, it's making a clear differentiation between clean and unclean animals and the person responded by saying oh but moses is writing the book of genesis so of course he would make that differentiation you know because he is jewish or he is an israelite but then i asked him the question okay it says seven of every clean animal seven pairs and then two of every other so who's making the differentiation did moses lead them onto the ark did noah even lead them onto the ark no God leads them onto the ark. Absolutely. God is making a differentiation between clean and unclean. So, yeah, really interesting. Absolutely fascinating. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Let's go to our quiz question answers. All right, for 100 points, the answer was harp. For 200 points, the answer was the temple. 300, camels. 400, Manasseh. And 500, the priest that showed King Josiah the Book of the Law's requirements. His name was Hilkiah. But right now it is time for... Question of the Day. All right, our question of the day comes from Janelle, and she asks, Is there a difference between the first begotten and the firstborn? Or do they mean the same thing? They mean the same thing. Well, thanks for listening. <laughs> no worries. Let's go on to the song. Sure. Now, let's, let's dwell on this a little bit more. So the word begotten in the Bible comes from uh, an original word that means to be brought forth. Uh, and so when a child is born, they are brought forth. In the context of the Bible, the word begotten always means born. Mm-hmm. And so people sort of question that, and they're like, well, you know, because John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only son that was ever born. Uh, He gave his only begotten son that we should not perish but have eternal life. And so this is one of the greatest promises there is in the Bible, one of the most well-known, and one that people appeal to all the time. And right there the Bible speaks about Jesus as being begotten, Jesus as being born. And so what does that actually reference? Uh, particularly when you have passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Son of God. How can you have the Son of God in the Old Testament before Jesus was actually born? Very, very clearly, the word begotten, uh, in other words, born, refers to the incarnation where Jesus was born of Mary. He was literally born as a human being is born of Mary and came into this world by being born. There's no, there's no, no one's arguing over that. Nobody's questioning that. And so was Jesus the first born? Yes. Was Jesus the first begotten? The, 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 there is no difference between born and begotten, but there is a difference between first. So first is where you are going to find differences. Let me explain the differences in first. You can have, and we rarely use it these days, but, you know, in the past we did use it more extensively. Probably the one place where we see it being used significantly today, the word first, other than chronologically, is in relationship to the US presidency where you have the first lady of the United States. 
Now, the first lady of the United States is Mrs. Biden. I've forgotten her first name. Uh, and uh, you got it there for us, Lawson? I think it's Jill, right? I think, I think it's Jill. I was going to say Jill. Um, yeah. But with the first lady of the United States, we don't think that she was first chronologically. She's first in preeminence. She's the most important. She's first in importance. And so when we look at Jesus, we say, was Jesus the first ever born? And some people say, well, he was the first ever born. Therefore, before he was born of Mary, he was born of the Father in heaven sometime before the existence of our world. No, that's not what it means. It means that of all of those who were ever born, Jesus was first or number one in preeminence. The Bible makes no sense if you have Jesus as the first one born literally, of the Father chronologically. So let me illustrate this from Colossians chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 13. It says, Who has delivered us from the power of this darkness, has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have, in in whom, that's in, in his dear Son, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And so people will read there, they'll stop reading right there, and they'll say, aha, there you go. Jesus was born of the Father a long time ago in heaven because he is the firstborn of every creature. Assuming that the word first is being used in the chronological sense rather than the preeminent sense. Now we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, which one is it? Well, context is going to give you the answer. Context is going to very, very clearly show for you that it was impossible for this to be in the chronological sense and must be in the preeminent sense. The next verse goes on and says, For by him, that's by Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions or principalities or power. All things were created by him and for him. And verse 17 just in case you're going to try and split hairs over being created and begotten, uh, for those that want to split hairs, verse 17 is here. He is before all things and by him all things consist. You cannot say that if you have a beginning chronologically. Because if you have a beginning chronologically, you are not before all things. The Father is. And so Jesus is the first in preeminence out of all those who were ever born. We've come to the end of our show, which means that we're about to sign off while Tassie Encounters is about to sign on. So stay tuned for Jason Cook and his team down there in Tassie doing amazing things. You'll have a great next hour of the show, so don't go away. Fantastic. All right, we would like to encourage you to study the Bible as always, and so we would like to encourage you. Why don't you try some one-on-one Bible studies? So, Lawson, this is what you do every day, one-on-one Bible studies. Uh Ask some today. Yes. I'm going to go do. I guess the great thing about a one-on-one Bible study is that you're able to ask any kind of question you want without interruption from a whole slew of other people. Mm. So every form of Bible study has its advantages and disadvantages. Mm. If you want one-on-one Bible studies, give us a call. 0491-064-669. We'll set it up for you. Don't forget to talk faith, live faith, act faith, and you will grow strong in Jesus Christ. Thanks 
for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.